Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Psalm 25, beginning in verse 1 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. This is the word of the Lord. The pastor and author John Piper once wrote, To wait on God means to pause and soberly consider how our own inadequacy and the Lord's all-sufficiency and to seek counsel and help from the Lord and to hope in him. The folly of not waiting for God is that we forfeit the blessing of having God work for us. The evil of not waiting on God is that we oppose God's will to exalt himself in mercy. So we're coming back to our little short series on waiting on God. And as we talked about last week, the reason why we're talking about this is twofold. Number one is the fact that we... Human beings are impatient, and if there's anything that we hate to do, is we hate to wait. And number two, in spite of the fact that we don't want to wait is, and that we hate to wait, we are created by God to wait on him. In fact, we were designed to wait for him. And the reason for that is simple. God is everything that we are not, and God is everything that we need. You see, the reason why we were designed to wait on God, it really comes down to our theology, how we understand about him. God is completely in control. God is all good. He is all knowing, and he works all things out for the good of those who love him, which means God, very simply, is all that we need. And as we discovered last week, the waiting, that waiting on God is actually not just how we were designed, but ultimately it's a spiritual discipline that is good for us and glorifies him. And last week we wrapped up by getting practical and talking about waiting on God in our daily devotional time, taking that time to be with him. Now today we're going to move on and we're going to explore what it means to wait on God when life changes Because if there's anything that's constant in the world is the fact that life does change. Just think about how many things have changed since 2020. It seems like the world beyond that, before that, is almost barely unrecognizable. Think about how much has changed in the last year for you. Think about what's changed over the last few years at First Baptist Church. There was a point before 2020 where we were we had two services a day, right? Where there were lots of people in our church family who've now moved on to other states, North Carolina, Montana. But how many things have changed in your own life today to this point? And the world has changed, radically so. And in light of 
what we're going to talk about. We need to wait on God and wait when there are big changes in our lives. Because if there's anything that we can count on is the fact that life is going to change. You get it just the way you want it and it's going to change. You finally make sense of how things are and then it's going to change. I think the worst kind of change personally is when software companies decide to update your software you know, without your consent, right? But our lives are constantly changing. Your life is not exactly the way it was yesterday. And you're definitely not the same person you were 10 years ago. In fact, every part of your life is changing. Your family is changing as they age and mature. Your relationships are changing because the people in those relationships themselves are changing. Your body is changing as much as we don't want it to. Every second that goes by right now, you are, I'm sorry to tell you, getting older. Not to mention how and what you think changes. Because because you know more today than you did yesterday, and you will know more tomorrow than you did today. And as we said, the world is changing around you. Everything, the economy is changing. The government is changing. Geopolitics is changing. Culture is changing. Music is changing. Your career is changing. Education is changing. Just think about the impact that AI is having on the world right now. We, don't even, we can't even fathom how much that technology will change the world around us. I remember there was a time in my life where when somebody wanted to get a hold of me, you know, there was this little black box on my hip that would beep, right? And then I had to go find a, a you know, a phone that you put coins in to, to call them, right? And I'm going to tell you, you, you say those things, but people, t- kids today look at you like you're, you've lost your mind. Just the mobile phone, how much has that changed your life? Now think about what AI is going to do. Everything in and around your life is in a constant state of change, whether for good or for evil. Because the reality is change is just a part of the way things are. And most of the and, and most of the things that change in your life, if you'll just admit it to yourself, are beyond your control. As we talked about last week, you are not God, which means you are not in control. Oftentimes there are things in in your life that changes where you do have some control, at least at least some influence in the changes, like when you face big decisions that you need to make. I think we all face those from time to time. There are different points in your life where you have a big decision you need to make, and, and you know that it's going to alter the course of your life. Do I buy this house? Do I get this job? Do I quit? Do I retire? Do I confront that person about that issue, or do I wait? Do I opt for the chemotherapy, or do I take my chances? Do I stay in this relationship? Do I leave? Do I go back to school? Or do I just keep doing what I'm doing? All of us, at some point, will face really big decisions that will change things, and those changes will have huge potential consequences for our lives. And again, there are good and negative consequences. But even more than that is the fact that all of us will face unforeseen circumstances in our lives. There are just going to be things that happen that we didn't expect. Like the cancer diagnosis or the death, the, the sudden death of a loved one or a sudden shift in the economy. 
Believe me, if the economy didn't change, we'd all be pretty well off. We'd know what to do with our money. Right? Or how about that new law that goes into effect? Or how about war, how that affects all of us? Now, unforeseen circumstances aren't always bad, though. Sometimes we have unforeseen opportunities. Maybe it was a raise you weren't expecting, or you get another job. Maybe you get a chance to do something that you wouldn't normally get to do. And sometimes these unexpected opportunities are very simple and easy to take advantage of, but sometimes taking advantage of these opportunities requires for us to make big sacrifices. Sometimes they come with big risks. Sometimes these opportunities have the ability to change the trajectory of your entire life. And as a result of that, you have important choices to make. But how do you make those decisions? I know for me, there are times I get caught up with analysis paralysis, right? Where you overthink things. There are times when we will face the fact that our plans also need to change. Sometimes we want things to be the way they are, but then we are confronted with the fact that something has to give. We have goals and we have a direction of life and, and, and there's a way we want to go. We have our plans and our vision, but then circumstances change and, and opportunities change and life changes and we discover that the direction we're going isn't working anymore. Isn't the result, it isn't gonna be the, it isn't, isn't the right thing for us anymore. Sometimes we need to reevaluate everything. And there are times when we face the fact that the changes we need to make in our lives are things we just don't want to change. Changes we don't want to make. Things that we struggle with, like addiction or forgiveness. If there's anything I think that many of us struggle with even still today is forgiving. Or how about budgeting? Or the horrible D were dieting or about confessing sin or changing jobs where you can spend more time with family. There are changes in all of our lives that we need to make, but we struggle to make them. And with all of these things and with all the decisions that lay before us and all the changes that come our way, it is easy for us to simply walk in our own strength. It's easy for us to think that we can simply handle it. The truth is we think of ourselves typically as decent, intelligent human beings capable of making all the right choices. And we tend to believe that we are smart enough to figure out things on our, our own. If there is a reoccurring flaw in most Christians is the innate sense that we can walk in our own wisdom and strength. But somehow God is only there for the really big things that God is really only there for when we get in ourselves into trouble. But everything else, you know, we just wing it or figure it out on our own. Well, there are three Bible verses I'd like to remind you of as we get started this morning that I think that you ought to at least somewhere keep track of as you decide to make decisions and, and, and walk in your own strength. The first one is Proverbs 16.9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. If there's a simple Bible verse that would be easy to put on your mirror to remind yourself every day to not walk in your own strength is this one right here. 
The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let us never forget that God is the one who's actually in control. It is easy in our daily lives to forget that we are completely dependent upon him for everything, and we should acknowledge him and all the decisions that we make. The second verse I think that you should remember is Proverbs 14, 12. And it reads, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is always, it's, but its end is the way to death. I think it, we need to face the fact that, that, that we're not completely in control of all things and we're not all knowing and we don't always make the best decisions for ourselves, right? even with the best information. Even with the very best information, you were, and I are capable of making really bad choices. Even when it seems everyone around us is supporting those choices. How many of you have ever made a decision in your life that you really felt confident and found out that that was definitely the wrong way to go? Yeah. Which leads to verse, which leads to the next verse, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Again, another one I think is worthy of committing to memory. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Ultimately, we need to lean on God. We need to trust him. We need to acknowledge God in everything that we do and every decision we make in every circumstance and opportunity we face. We need to trust that he will show us the way if we will but wait for him. But the question is, what does that even look like? I, I mean, it's easy to convince you of the fact that we need to wait for God when we face life changes and, and we know it's good for us to wait, but how do we do this? How do we open our hearts and minds to him and his will for us as things change around us? Well, that's what we're going to cover today. And I want to begin right up front and just tell you that this is, this is not a 10-point checklist, okay? I'm not giving you a list of little instructions. I'm not giving you eight ways to have a better life here. What we're going to talk about are the principles that God has given us in his word that will help us to know how we are to wait on him. The second thing I want you to know is is what is, is what we're going to look at today is not an exhaustive, comprehensive list of these principles. This is a portion of the scripture, I think, that really is helpful. But the truth is there's a lot to learn in the word of God about patience and waiting on God and trusting him through the Bible. That's why we ought to be lifetime learners. But in Psalm 25, there are five excellent principles that we need to learn to apply to our lives. And, and they will help us to get clarity in, in how we wait on God in a way that honors him, but ultimately is good for us as well. These principles will help you grow deeper in your relationship with him, and they will help in every area of our lives. So again, let's look at Psalm 25. Um, and I'll just read the entire Psalm, and then we'll kind of like take it apart. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over you. 
Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who were wantonly treacherous. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness and those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For his namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Excuse me, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward you, toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lowly, lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my afflictions and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes. And with that violent hatred, they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. Of this particular psalm, there's a pastor that said that David grapples with the heavy issues of life, avoiding denial and affirming dependence. He must trust in God in the face of his troubles and troublemakers. In other words, what David deals with here is the issue of depending on ourselves or depending on God when we face the changing circumstances of our lives. And what we find in this psalm is that David comes to terms completely giving himself over to trusting and waiting for God for direction. In fact, in verse 3 is the promise of the entire psalm. Verse 3 is the promise of this entire psalm which reads, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That bears repeating. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Which, by the way, is exactly what we want. We, we don't want to be put to shame. We don't want to make choices right, or react to circumstances or jump in, in, in on opportunities that will cause us grief or shame. We don't want to make big mistakes. We don't want to make our lives worse. We don't want to appear to be idiots before the rest of the world when we're hasty and go the wrong way. We desire to make good choices. We want to do what's right. We want to react in a way that is good for us and good for our families. And if we're Christians, we're going to want to make choices that ultimately bring honor to God. We want to make him proud, not, a, not ashamed. And the promise here is, is, is those who wait on God will not be put to shame. Now hear me, waiting on God is not about ignoring our problems. I want to be really, really clear. Because sometimes people say, I'm just waiting on the Lord. No, you're not actually doing anything. Right? 
Waiting on God is not about ignoring our problems or just hoping that God's going to magically solve them. We're not talking about becoming complacent, right, and avoiding making decisions. We're talking about actively waiting on God, which means to actively seek him out, actively looking for his help and counsel, actively going before the Lord to engage him. Waiting on God is an active exercise. It is not a passive activity. And that's what we see in the text here. In, in, in the text, there are five principles on how to actively wait on God. And the first principle is the principle of devotion. The principle of devotion is where we are wholly committed to devoting ourselves into the hand of the Lord. It's where we completely place our trust into God. And I want you to know, sometimes there's moments in our lives where that's harder to do than we think. Because we want to say, Lord, do what you will. And you're like, but just in case you don't, I got, I got plan B here. Just in case you don't do what I want you to do. Right? Devotion is where we place our trust in God completely. It's where we completely depend upon him, where we actively depend on him. In verse 1 and 2, it reads, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. David here declares to God that he is completely trusting him. That he is com committing himself completely into the hand of God. In verse 15, it says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. David says, my eyes and my attention are fixed on God. I'm not worried about my troubles. I'm not trying to solve my own problems and my own strength. I'm keeping my eyes and my mind and my heart fixed on him. And in verse 20, he says, guard my heart. Excuse me. Oh, Lord, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. You see, David focuses on God because he knows where his safety is. He knows where his refuge is. He knows where to go. He knows where to turn when things are difficult. And he devotes himself to God. In these verses, what we see is David recognizes his own limitations. He recognizes the fact that he is not all-knowing, that he is not sovereign. And he needs to turn to him, to the one for answers. David completely devotes himself into God's sovereign hand. And number two, the second principle is the principle of fearing God. Now, the idea of fearing God is something that is almost lost in our, our culture here in America. And it is to our detriment. And I'm not talking about the kind of fear that a person feels when they're about to face a life and death surgery. And I'm not talking about the fear that people feel when they might lose their job and don't have any money. And I'm certainly not talking about the kind of fear that's portrayed on a movie screen when a vile monster jumps up out of the darkness and grabs hold of his victim. I'm talking about the reverential fear of God. The sense of awe and majesty that a person experiences when they are near to God and they actually understand who he is. In fact, I want you to think about this for just a second. I love this little thought experiment because I think it really puts things in perspective. If you go outside on a clear day 
and you stand there, and if a jet flies over at 30,000 feet, you are invisible to them. They cannot see you. You're not even a speck on the earth in their perspective. That's how small you are upon the face of the earth. And the earth itself, viewed near the edge of our solar system, is barely visible in space as well. It's, it's a speck. The planet we live on is a tiny speck compared to the solar system. In fact, Voyager 2, uh, the last picture that it had taken, they spun the cameras around and pointed at Earth. It is still in our solar system, pointed at Earth. And this vast picture, they can see this tiny luminescent dot, one pixel, that's all you can see from from there. The Earth is insignificantly small compared to the size of our solar system. And, and our solar system itself is a speck in the galaxy. And our galaxy isn't even a speck in the, glust, in the cluster of galaxies that we exist in. And that is minuscule by comparison to the observable universe, which is about 96 billion light years across. And so given the context of the universe, really, we are nothing. Now, the thing that astounds me and moves my heart to worship is that God is outside of, but at the same time completely everywhere in the universe. He is bigger and greater than the entire creation, and infinitely so. Compared to God, the universe isn't even a speck. And, and, and this God that created the universe, he created everything in it, including you. God is the most powerful being that has ever existed, and he is so powerful that we can't even wrap our heads around it. And this God controls every detail of the universe down to every molecule. And if desired, he could make it all vanish like that. And you are in his hands. And everything that you have was given to you by his hand. God has the power to completely change everything in a second. And he knows there everything there is to know about you. He knows your inward thoughts, even the things that you try to hide from yourself. He knows it all. He sees it all. And he's completely in control of everything. Even your beating heart to the light breeze outside. <laughs> the, or the movement of the planets. And he's in control of everything that's going to happen tomorrow all the way through to eternity. God's power is so awesome that the word awesome fails to even convey what that means. And, 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 and that God that you can't even wrap your head around, invited you into an up-close personal relationship with him. And not only that, if you put your trust in Christ, that God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you, intimately connected to you. This is one of those things I think we just fail to remember, is that, that the creator of all things takes up dwelling inside of you. The, the greatest Power in the universe dwells inside of the Christian because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that by itself ought to make you stand in awe. 
That should move your heart to deep reverence and respect. That should move your spirit to worship God with trembling hands, knowing how broken you are and how perfect he is. How holy and righteous God is, all-powerful and glorious and majestic, the God of love and the God of justice, the God of deep compassion and the God of terrible wrath. That God is the God that you stand before in the presence of every single day. And the right response would be to reverence and to fear him. And that's what David tells us. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the, in the way that he should choose his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him in this reverential way and he makes known to them his covenant. A proper relationship with God built on, is built on having a reverential, holy fear of him. If our theology is correct, if we truly understand who God is and we understand who we are in light of who God is, then this fear would be a byproduct of our life. An important part of waiting on God and seeking counsel and all when life changes is to have a robust understanding of this God so that we can stand in awe of him. An important part of waiting on God is understanding him enough to fear him. And, I, and, and, and this is why I say theology is so important. It's why theology matters. Because you will never stand in awe and reverence of a God that you don't know. That's why so many people in the church today don't reverence him. To them, God is just this benign cosmic friend that god is their butler who's just waiting on them to ask for what they need again i've heard people say that you know jesus is my homeboy <laughs> reducing god down to this casual relationship that's on the level of 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 human friends brothers and sisters we're a friend of god because christ calls us friend not because we are equals. And for many in the church, God is just this benign deity that is so loving that he never is upset in anything and he doesn't hold anyone accountable for anything. The reason why people don't have a reverential fear of God is because they have a flawed understanding of who he is. They don't know him. They don't truly understand the God and who he is in full glory. If we will grow to understand him. We will stand in awe of him and reverence him in fear. And the Bible tells us that if we, that is our attitude toward him, he will instruct us when we make decisions. He will guide us in the way that we should go. And it's the promise of the scriptures. The third principle is the principle of humility. I think that rightly should follow the principle of, of fear of the Lord. If we understand who God is and we have a reverential fear of him, if we understand who he is in light, and in light of that who we are as, as humans, as the Bible tells us, right, we will be humble. And the word tells us that he leads the humble in what is right. 
He teaches the humble his way. The promise for humility is that God rewards humility. When our theology is correct, we will fear God and we will walk in humility before him. And when we do that, the Bible tells us that he will lead us in the way that we should go. And so an important principle of waiting on God is humility, which means keeping a proper perspective of who we are, which, as we've already outlined already, it's pretty simple, I think, to have a good, a, a working understanding of who we are. You're not God, which means you're not in control. And if you'll be honest with yourself, you'll admit that you're not always good. And you're certainly not all-knowing, which means you don't always make the best decisions. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we realize we're a speck in the universe and we are completely and wholly dependent upon God for everything. That's the kind of humility we ought to walk in. And that, that, that knowledge should drive us to our knees in prayer to seek God's counsel and leadership when things change in our lives. And then number four is a principle of teachability. This comes right on the heels of being humble. We must be teachable. We must be willing to learn. We must be willing to take instruction. David says, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We need to be willing to be taught. And I know that sometimes we think that we are, but there are times I think we're resistant to, to learning or being taught, especially when we think we know things. We need to be open to the Lord making known his way. We need to be open to God's counsel and his divine wisdom, and we need to be teachable and wait for the, for the Lord. The question is, is, are we teachable? Are you teachable? Are you submitting to yourself to God enough to be taught? And I ask that because how does God teach us? How does he instruct us? Well, the truth is God teaches us primarily through his word. That's how he teaches us. Now, you might say, well, he teaches us through the Holy Spirit. And it is true that he does use the Holy Spirit to teach us. But primarily the Holy Spirit guides us as we read his word and listen to the word being preached. He guides us to understand and seek the truth in his word. Because let's just be clear, there is not a new book being written for this. It's not a new revelation. And there's no new apostle or prophets in the world. God is teaching us primarily through the word by the power of his spirit. And I want you to think about this. You have a life-altering decision to make, and you go and you pray to God, and you say, God, show me the way, and you say, God, lead me. But then you refuse to spend time with him in his word, learning from him, searching his truths. But instead, you're just simply waiting for a subjective emotional experience. And I, and I say this, and I mention this, because this is so much more common than you might think. I know lots of people saying, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just praying for the Lord. And they just wait and wait, and they're waiting for something to, to happen inside them or some external thing to happen rather than going to the Word of God looking for wisdom. My friends, that's not being teachable. 
It's like saying, God, help me know your will, but then I don't want to read the book that tells me what your will is. The fact of the matter is, if you're going to depend on God to guide you, you need to humble yourself enough to be teachable, which means you need to read the word. And I, I know now I'm in broken record territory, right? Because I said that so many times, I might sound like a broken record, but you need to read the word. You need to read the word. And not just occasionally, but every day, thank you. You need to read the word, you need to study the word, and you need to meditate upon the word. And let me, let me be, and I want to be honest, like, and I've, I've heard all of the reasons why. I've given and used all the same reasons why I struggle with that. So I've heard them all. I know what the excuses are. Well, I'm not a reader. You know how to become a reader? Then start reading. There you go. Well, I just don't have enough time. Well, how much time have you been spending on your phone doom scrolling? I don't understand what I'm reading. Well, then continue reading. And we live in an age where there is a, an abundance of study tools that will help. There's more, we have more information today than has ever existed in all of humanity up to this point with respect to being able to go even to original text and finding out what Greek words mean. There, there are thousands of commentaries. There's, there's billions of hours of messages. Right? You can understand if you will just invest the time. Reading the word puts me to sleep. All right? Then read the word early in the morning and drink a lot of coffee, maybe. I don't know. But understand, these things are just excuses. God in his grace... God, by the way, who is unknowable, if he doesn't, let it, doesn't reveal himself by his grace, revealed himself in his word. And so the question is, are you willing to learn from God or are you not? And it's that simple. If God is important enough, then you will seek him out. Number five, the final principle I want to share with you is the principle of holiness. Because think about it. How does it make sense to seek God's counsel and God's will and God's direction for your life if you're unwilling to walk or pursue holiness in your own life. By the way, a holiness that God's calling us to walk in. The holiness that, that is known to be his will. The Bible says, be holy as God is holy. How does it make sense for us to seek God's wisdom when we refuse to repent of the sin that's in our own lives? Because let me be straight with you. You want to know what God's will for your life is? I can tell you what God's will for your life is. There are some things that are not mysterious at all. God wants you to repent and believe the gospel. That's his will for your life. God wants you to put your trust in Christ, and he wants you to spend time with him in prayer, in his word, and to wait on him. That's God's will for your life. And he wants you to confess your sin and repent of that sin and walk in holiness. That's what he wants. That is his will for your life. See? I didn't even have to get all mysterious on you. The fact is, Christ followers, we need to take seriously the truth that God calls us to walk in personal holiness. And again, we're told in the word to be holy because God is holy. Now, please understand. Because when I talk about personal holiness, people sometimes get really itchy. I am not saying that you need to be holy and follow all the rules and do all the right things to be saved. That is not what I'm saying here. 
Your personal holiness is not what brings you into right relationship with God because you can never be that holy. The fact is you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not of your works. As Ephesians, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, it's a gift from God. Your relationship with God is not about your merits because you can't do enough to merit it. That's the facts of the gospel. But let me share with you another fact. God may accept you for who you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. The truth is, you are, if you have been regenerated, if you have truly been drawn to God and you have been saved, your life will begin to change by the power of God. Hear me, not that your life's going to be perfect and that you'll never fall into sin. But the truth is, your life will change. And your desires, right along with it, will change. And you will begin to love the things that God loves, and you'll begin to hate the things that God hates. And I want to tell you right now what God loves. Besides his people, he loves holiness, because he's holy. And I'm going to tell you what he hates. He hates sin, because it's so heinous and destructive. And if we truly belong to God and follow Christ, our affections and desires will begin to change to be like God's and we will begin to desire holiness. And the truth is, if we're going to seek God's direction for our lives, if we're going to wait for him to guide and lead us, then we need to take personal holiness seriously. In fact, look at what David says here. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. God shows favor on those who obey him. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. David is saying, I wait for you, God. My integrity and uprightness protect me. May obedience be a blessing. You see, there's a connection between waiting on God to guide us as we navigate in life and how it changes and the commitment we have to personal holiness before God. The truth is one goes with the other. <clears throat> like I said, <clears throat> why would we seek God's will if we don't even want to do what God wants us to do to start with? <clears throat> the fact of the matter is we need to cultivate in our own lives a desire for personal holiness. If we're going to be led by God if we're going to wait on him for direction, we are going to entrust ourselves into his hand for the future. We need to build a passion to be holy before God. Well, how do we walk in personal holiness? Well, this is where people would expect from me now to give you a list of things that you need to do, right? But the good news is the answer is always the same answer. It is repent and believe the gospel. It is to turn to him and trust in him and hold on to him. We begin a relationship with Christ through repentance and faith, and we continue to walk with him the same way. As Paul says, what began in the spirit, you're going to perfect in the flesh? No. When we encounter sin in our lives, when we, when we find that we fall into unholiness, do we just grit our teeth and say, okay, I'm going to try really hard and I'm going to, get, I'm going to do better? No, we turn from it and we turn our hearts and minds toward Christ 
in dependent, childlike faith. We turn to God and say, Lord, change my heart. Lord, change my attitude. Give me the ability and the strength to walk away from this sin. Help me to walk in holiness. It's impossible for us to do that on our own. The entire Christian life is the same. It is about repentance and faith. We are justified by turning away from our self-righteousness and turning towards the righteousness of Christ. And we we are sanctified through the same method. We turn from sin and turn to Christ by faith. And when we fail, and when we make a mess of things, because brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me. This side of heaven, you're not going to be perfect. You will fall into sin. It will happen. Some of you might be temporary. Some of it might be even long-term egregious sin. But when you fall, the remedy is to trust in God's grace and continue to repent and believe the gospel. That's how we walk in holiness. Holiness is not about you, all right, suddenly getting it all together. Holiness is not about you wearing the right clothes to church. Holiness is not about you, you know, abstaining from all the things that you think are wrong. Holiness is about keeping your eyes set on Christ and trusting in him alone and allowing him to change you from the inside out. And that's how we wait on the Lord to give us direction. We see, you see, waiting on God when it comes to to life's changes is something that we don't sit around waiting on. We're not waiting for God to whisper into our hearts what to do. We wait on him by devoting ourselves completely to him, worshiping him with reverential awe, seeking his wisdom and all humility listening carefully to him and his word and being teachable and then practicing personal holiness, continually turning to him in repentance and faith. That's what it looks like, according to the word of God, to wait on him when life changes. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is simply this. Are we hearers of the word only or are we doers of the word? With that being said, then, As always, I extend the invitation. If you're not in Christ, today is the day. Repent and believe the gospel. And the gospel is the simplest, most glorious, most scandalous message there is. That you were created in the image of God to have right relationship with him. But because of sin, you have been completely severed from God. As Paul says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And the worst part is there's nothing you can do on your own to to fix it. Even when you discover that you're outside of a a right relationship with God and you're under his wrath, you can't make it right on your own. You can't fix it. Isaiah tells us that our best efforts before God are, are rubbish or filthy rags. And so we are helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. But then God, by his grace and mercy, by his will, decided to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to do all the things for us that are required that we can't do. He lived the perfect, righteous life that's required to have relationship with God and offers that life to us. And then he died in our place, making atonement for 
all of our sin, not part of our sin, all of our sin. And the promise of the gospel is simply that if you will turn to Christ in repentance and faith, you have his righteousness so you can stand before God without shame and all of your sins are washed away and eternal life is yours and fellowship with God is yours. And so today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you are in Christ, pursue holiness and rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And for those of us who are in Christ, let us then go out into the world and share that message of hope that God loved you enough to bring you into right relationship and there are people he loves out there and he, he loves you enough to make you an instrument that he's using to spread the good news. Let us be a church that is willing to storm the gates of hell and bring home the lost. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.